Welcome to Brain Bites, a podcast produced by the Brain Injury Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, where we provide education and resources for clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal diagnosis and treatment. An individual should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. So welcome, everybody, to uh, the Brain Injury Special Interest Group newest podcast episode. We're so excited today to have our topic be on wheelchair seating and positioning, which I know is a topic that can be really tricky for individuals with brain injuries. So we have two guests today for our show. We have Stacey McCusker and Susan Taylor. They're going to introduce themselves, give you a little bit of their background, and then we'll get into talking about this awesome topic. Stacey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself first? Um, yes, I'm a physical therapist, and I have spent most of my career working with clients with neurological problems and a great deal of time working with clients with uh, brain injuries at the former Rehab Institute of Chicago, now Shirley Ryan. And um, for a lot of my time there, I also worked in the wheelchair seating and positioning clinic um, uh, as a therapist. Um, so... I currently work for New Motion as a clinical support specialist, um, writing letters of, I mean, uh, line item justifications for the insurance companies. Okay. And Susan? I'm Susan Johnson Taylor. I happen to be an occupational therapist. Um, I have been in this field since 1980. I literally grew up with this field because there wasn't much of one in 1980. So I've been really fortunate to sort of have, have seen it evolve from basically nothing where we made things out of, you know, plywood and foam and did our best to having all of these choices that we have now, which is just incredible. Um, I am the director of uh, training and education for New Motion. And I would say that my the, the biggest thing that I do is the assistive technology outcome measure project. Um, which actually Stacy also is involved with to a huge degree. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, and that's it. Stacy and I did work together at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago, uh, probably just in the seating clinic for about 10 years. And she was awesome. inpatient before that. Awesome. So it's great that we have both of you with clinical perspectives. Um, and now you've added onto your repertoire to have more of kind of the, vendor and kind of um, distribution kind of perspective as well. Um, so I think that's a great place to really start off our questioning because, um, you know, wheelchair seating and positioning um, is tricky and there's complexities on a variety of fronts. And the first is just kind of the whole process of um, kind of helping a client get a wheelchair. Um, so could one of you kind of just describe the basic process for kind of if we have a client who may need a customized wheelchair, um, what as a clinician, you know, we should do and kind of what the timeline might be and kind of walk us through that process just a little bit. So the, the, uh, the big umbrella is that the timeline is usually between 60 and 90 days. Um, there after the client is evaluated by the ATP supplier and the therapist as a team, which should always be happening, you should always be evaluating your client right alongside um, a, an ATP supplier who specializes in complex rehab technology. Um, that's actually that's actually the shortest part. 
the longest part is the, the, um, and I had no idea it was this complicated. I thought I knew before I came to work for a supplier, but there is a, a, a very complex uh, situation of all kinds of documents needed aside from the evaluation that we do as therapists. So that's, it's, it's a complicated process. There's lots and lots and lots of private funders, Medicaid, Medicare, and of course, each of them have their own um, rules that we, we all have to follow. So it sounds like uh, evaluation is an integral part of the process and that an evaluation should ideally be with a clinician and uh, ATP. And from that, um, the wheelchair maybe components are decided upon and then there's a lot of documentation, it sounds like, um, and there's a lot of background things going on from the supplier related to securing funding and actually yes. um, building the components of the wheelchair. Is that in a nutshell about the right kind of sequence of events? In a, in a nutshell, that is the sequence of events. And I can't stress enough how important it is for that, that clinical team of the supplier and the therapist, especially with this diagnosis, to be working alongside each other. I right. can't imagine explaining what I discovered in my evad mat evaluation um, with, with the supplier someplace else. And right. right. Stacy and I were both very much into the suppliers right next to us on the mat with the client. We're explaining what we're doing. I'm guiding the process because I'm the therapist. That's my right. role. Um, but then everybody really understands what's going on uh, with the client's body. So it sounds like the some valuable pieces of information, maybe from the from the therapist, whether it be the physical or the occupational therapist, would kind of knowing some basic uh, maybe impairments and maybe some measurements, uh, maybe some range of motion, maybe some um, posturing or positioning that the client tends to go towards. Um, but what other things are you looking? What kind of information is valuable information that the clinician can contribute to the to the ATP? Um, when this evaluation is happening in a collaborative manner? Well, I think, first of all, you have to just start from the beginning where you do your typical evaluation of a client. That means finding out the complete medical history, which if you can share that with the ATP prior to the eval, that's helpful. Um, doing, uh, finding out about the social history. What is the client's story? What happened? Um, any psychosocial information that's helpful, and then just going through the complete evaluation, starting with a mat evaluation. They have to be out of the chair, on the mat, um, in sitting if possible, if not in supine. If you can do both, that's even better. Um, mm -hmm. But going through the whole thing of range of motion, yes, taking measurements is very helpful. Um, doing Assessing tone. Um, Assessing sensation, um, you know, that includes any kind of uh, skin issues and pressure injuries that may already be present or you know, have a history of. Um, and um, strength, if that could be tested, then you want to look at the, the, the postural um, situation of the client. Do, how much assistance mm -hmm. do they need to sit? What what postures are reducible and what are non-reducible? Where do you need to put your hands to give them support? All of that is going to help you and the ATP determine what components are needed for the wheelchair. 
I was just going to say, I think a lot of times uh, PTs and OTs here, you need to do a seating and wheel mobility eval and their first response, especially if they're new is, but I don't know anything about wheelchairs and seating. How could I possibly do that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's the ATP supplier's responsibility. They are the equipment experts, but you are the expert on the body. And what in regular therapy, we have treatment plans in a seating and wheel mobility evaluation. The treatment plan is equipment. Mm-hmm. You're defining the goals for your client with your client, hopefully. And then the ATP is helping match the equipment to those goals, but it's your responsibility to define the goals. That's a great point, Susan. Cause I, I do believe, um, personally speaking and speaking to a lot of my colleagues that the seating and positioning world, there's a lot of ever there's ongoing changes there's always new equipment there's always new things Mm -hmm. being marketed and it does seem rather daunting to keep up with that Um, but you bring up a good point that that's really not necessarily the physical therapist or the occupational therapist's um, prerogative to really keep up with everything but they're really they it's kind of what they want to prioritize for seating what they're looking to get out of the seating system and it's kind Mm -hmm. of like a game of match to me that the vendor Mm -hmm. the atp is able to say oh you want to get this position here are the two best pieces of equipment that we could choose from or here's the one piece of equipment that would help you accomplish that goal so i think that's a nice mindset for clinicians especially inexperienced clinicians or clinicians who don't get an opportunity to work with seating and positioning too often um, if you have that perspective of, you know, having goals in mind, what do you want the seating system to do for this patient or this client? What does the client want the seating system to do for them? Um, and then it's the, you're the expert, the vendors and the, the ATPs are the experts um, of knowing what pieces of equipment can help facilitate that goal or reach yes. that goal. That's Absolutely. a great way to look at it. That makes it, I think, a little less daunting. Um, and I that's, think that's- Oh, I'm sorry. I think the thing to remember is that if you can do trials of this equipment, even if it's not the exact equipment that's recommended, but something similar, that's going to really help you and the ATP determine what's going to work. Because ATP may say, well, I think this will work, but then you try it and it's like, oh, that hits them in the wrong you know, place. This is uncomfortable. Right. So, and, and how would a clinician go about getting some trial equipment like that? What's the, what's the best way for them to facilitate that? Well, I think they need to go through the ATP first and determine what, you know, which is if they have uh, access to that trial equipment. If not, then approaching manufacturers reps, either the ATP doing it or the therapist doing it, depending on who feels comfortable about it. Um, that's an excellent way to get trial equipment. Now that may extend this evaluation period and mm-hmm. may mean you don't make decisions right away, but I think it often has a much better outcome. Right, right. So it sounds like having a good relationship with some local ATPs, maybe even some local um, uh, manufacturers uh, would be helpful for a clinician to acquire um, those and develop those relationships mm-hmm. that they have maybe some equipment at their disposal to trial um, and to kind of have this working relationship with some, some people nearby could really come in handy. Yeah. Manufacturers reps really like to demonstrate their equipment and they're very happy to do in-services, especially as new equipment comes out and can often be talked into leaving some with you (laughs) temporarily anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that brings up, I'm sorry, I was going to say, I think that brings up a really good point that, you know, when we're talking about individuals with the moderate or severe brain injury, 
um, Susan, as you mentioned, sometimes we think we know what's going to be best for them, but then when we actually try it out, it doesn't really turn out um, the way we anticipated or hypothesized. Um, so having right. those trials, um, I could see where there would be a lot of value in that. Well, I mean, it's even for a highly experienced person, it's very difficult to go from hand simulation on the mat to, I'm pretty sure this will work, to just prescribing it. I mean, as Stacy said, and as we all know, especially with people who have traumatic brain injuries, they could have some completely unexpected reaction to what you just thought would work. Mm -hmm. And then you have to step back and, and take a look. So trial equipment is absolutely a must. And as Stacy said, it doesn't have to be the exact thing you're thinking about. I mean, even in a giant clinic like we worked worked in, um, we might have wanted to trial some lateral pelvic supports. Well, we didn't have any. So, you know, where's the duct tape and a couple of blocks, you know, whatever, right. whatever works so that you can see if that posture that you're thinking will work will work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, the also important thing to remember is trialing it over time. Huh. Because as we yes. all know, this population can, can react right differently. Um, you know, even during the period of a day, right. In terms of restlessness, agitation, whatever. Mm -hmm. is, you know, fluctuating tone. Um, mm -hmm. So that's important to look at. Right. So you started to kind of lead me into my next topic of discussion here, which is some of the common challenges that we might see in individuals with a moderate or severe brain injury. Um, I know personally, I have some challenges that I see commonly, but you may have seen um, some other things across your career being a little bit longer and more involved in this than I am. Um, so are there common things that you see, common complexities, you mentioned maybe restlessness, agitation, um, anything else that comes to mind that are pretty common for this population? Well, I think tone issues are huge. Um, you know, judging, I mean, going from very low tone to high tone to mixed to fluctuating, you know, so, so that's important to monitor. I think behavioral issues can be huge as well. Um, you know, whether it's they can't stand to be contained, so they need to have dynamic components to allow them to be able to move a little bit. So that mm -hmm. helps decrease the restlessness and the agitation. Mm -hmm. or, um, and with the restlessness and agitation, another big, uh, uh, another big area that y'all on the floor used to come down to seating clinic with is this person is injuring themselves on this equipment. Exactly. You know, what 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 can we do to uh, to make them safe while they're going through? Um, whatever phase that they're going through. Right. Um, yeah, I think personally, um, and with a lot of the colleagues here at my facility, um, especially for individuals who may have a disorder of consciousness, um, head control and head positioning is really something that we struggle with quite a bit. Um, individuals may um, not have much head control and therefore um, need some sort of assistance to maintain their head um, in a supported manner. Um, or like you mentioned, it may fluctuate and based on the tilt of their wheelchair or the angle of their backrest, um, it might change their head position. Um, and then uh, kind of on the other side of things, we have individuals who do go into some postures or kind of elicit some uh, muscle overactivity, which brings their head into a rotated or a side bent position. So even if they do have some support, they find a way to wiggle off it. Um, so I see that quite a bit, and that often presents quite a challenge um, for the rehab team in helping mm -hmm. with seating and positioning. 
And, and, and I'd rather see a person all day long who has no head control rather than one who pulls into flexion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's a true, a real safety issue as well, particularly if they can get their head out and behind the the headrest. You know, right. That's it. Right. Right. The but that head control thing. is so important for so many things, especially at that level of function where they may only have facial expressions to communicate or they may, um, you know, use an eye gaze system um, or even for breathing and swallowing and secretion management, oral secretion management, having an optimal head position is really um, where we're going to, you know, address a lot of their communication and kind of basic physiologic needs. Um, so that is always a priority, I know, for us to figure out um, head positioning um, as best as we can. And the thing to remember, too, is to to remember about pressure distribution. I mean, you can get them locked into a very good position, but if they're pushing against it, they can be causing skin issues or breaking the equipment, right. depending on right. what's going on. Yeah. Yes, that's a really good point. Um, one of the other challenges that I happen to see quite a bit now working in a specialty outpatient clinic that is um, specific for individuals with brain injury is that we have individuals who have a chronic condition who are maybe um, not very active and um, lead a little bit more of a sedentary lifestyle. And so over time, um, their size, their posture changes. Um, and so having a wheelchair that's initially prescribed that has some adjustability, kind of some growth mm -hmm. involved um, in the setup is really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another area that maybe acutely isn't so obvious, but I do see that in more of that chronic phase of recovery. Um, mm -hmm. And um, that as well, just for anyone listening who's not aware, um, so wheelchairs um, are not handed out like candy. <laughs> we have a, a limited number of resources um, and it's hard to get multiple chairs or more than one chair, especially in, in specific time frames. Typically, you get, ladies can correct me if I'm wrong, but typically five years mm -hmm. um, yes. is, is about the time frame. Um, so, you know, having individuals who change over time um, even if it's something as simple as, you know, they start to develop some edema because of a dependent leg position and their initial wheelchair had fixed leg rest, but now we're hoping to get some elevating leg rest. Um, in my experiences, what that entails is not just saying, hey, we need to change out these leg rests, but it entails a prescription. It entails a letter of medical necessity. Uh, it entails an evaluation of why that component tree that the person mm -hmm. has no longer is feasible. Um, even if it's a, if a seemingly minor component, like a leg rest or a seat belt or an armrest. It, in, it entails all of those things. And to some extent, I'm really happy you mentioned flexibility of the seating system and the wheelchair, because in many respects, funders expect us to uh, have our crystal ball and look into the future, which sometimes you can plan. And sometimes you can't, like, I can't tell who's going to develop horrible HO. Right. You know, and then, you know, you have this geometry that you're having a hard time accommodating in the chair that the person's currently in. But, but being able to adjust for all those. Um, I had another thing in my head. Oh, yes. And at the at the time when you do your prescription, and I know sometimes it's impossible, but the best you can predict between dependent and and some type of independent mobility 
I mean, that to me, that's a really big thing because sentencing somebody to a manual tilt, for example, um, and I say sentencing because if they're able to do something, then that is kind of like a sentence because they can't move, um, is, is really tough. So looking at any way that patient can safely be mobile or, um, I mean, Stacy had a, why don't you tell your example of the young man who basically came in minimally conscious and then, and then I saw him as an inpatient therapist and we sent him off with, you know, the sort of standard manual tilt and space. But I then saw him again as an outpatient. I think it was two or three years later and we evaluated him for a power wheelchair. Now he didn't look very different, but his responsiveness, his cognitive abilities had improved. Um, he could do a little bit more of a movement with his hand, um, and he had excellent family support who were willing to be there with him all the time when he was using the power wheelchair. And he was able to do it. In fact, he was even, even able to tease us by trying to run us over <laughs> as a joke. <laughs> so yeah. that's and important. I, know, I think that really actually kind of circles back to one of the things you mentioned at the very beginning of this discussion, which is the physical therapist should share with the ATP when they're doing that initial evaluation past medical history and that social history. Um, I think those are really um, helpful pieces of information that can help predict. It's not, again, it's not, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know for certain. Um, but I think mm -hmm. knowing some of that, um, you know, if there's a medical situation that potentially has um, an ability to um, exa be exacerbated or to change over time, we might, mm -hmm. the ATP might think about components to a seating um, and positioning system that are a little bit different than a person who has maybe a, a static kind of situation. Mm -hmm. um, and same thing with social history, right? Mm -hmm. Have, knowing what supports are available, what resources are available, that may um, direct the conversation about which components of a wheelchair seating positioning system um, may be more appropriate than others. Um, so, so yeah, more, I think the more exchange of information, I couldn't agree more. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The more exchange yeah. of information. I mean, there's no hogging of information. It's mm -hmm. a, if everybody can see the whole picture, then you're going to have a much more likely to be successful with your intervention. And right. that's kind right. of why we do this. So, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's that it's important to share that information as ongoing because, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is very difficult when you, you're seeing someone as an inpatient, you do a prescription for a wheelchair, and then maybe you never have any contact with them after that, um, and they get their wheelchair. But you may not know unless you figure out a way to follow them, <laughs> either by contacting outpatient therapists or something, um, to say, okay, what changes have happened? Is this client now walking? So they just need a, a manual wheelchair that they can use for, for longer distances. Right. Um, because, you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do, but the orders can be canceled all the way up to delivery. The, the worst part is having to cancel them at delivery. <laughs> so, right. It's sort of a double-edged sword. Oh my gosh, look, you're walking. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Great for that person, but that changes our whole thought process and our whole decision that we just made about this, what you might need for seating. Right. Yeah. And I it just sort of one more thing. I, I think it's at the delivery slash fitting, it's really incumbent upon the therapist and the ATP supplier person 
to make it really clear that we're not just giving this to you and we'll see you in five years because a lot of people just don't think that way. Um, mm-hmm. The clients, we really need to see you in an ongoing way. So let's say we see you every six months at first, because there is nothing worse to me as a therapist and all of us as a therapist, that having somebody come back and they've been sitting so uncomfortable for like two years. Right. And you're just thinking, Oh my God, I wish you had called us. You know, mm-hmm. It's just so just making them a you expect to see them back for review. Right, right. And I think that's a great point too. You know, clinicians who are listening to this may be working in the inpatient rehab setting, but some may be working in home care or in outpatient um, or other settings. Um, And you may not be the one who initially prescribes the wheelchair, but that ongoing um, check-in about the wheelchair's functionality, if it's meeting the client's needs, whether it be from a comfort perspective, from a safety perspective, from a caregiver's perspective, I think those are sometimes things that we could overlook easily and, you know, be so focused on the body that's in front of us, but not think about kind of the um, kind of participation and activity level and the wheelchair as a main um, component of that activity and participation level. So checking in about the equipment, um, I think is something that we as clinicians can do um, a little bit more regularly um, especially since we probably would be able to access uh, an ATP a little bit easier than a client might or a supplier mm-hmm. might feel a little more comfortable um, facilitating that conversation and, and reaching out to help them access that resource. That's a really good point. It's also important to ask about, you know, ongoing home accessibility and transportation because those things change, as we know, and it's it's sad to find out, oh, well, they can't use their power wheelchair anymore because they don't have any way to transport it or it doesn't work in their house. That right. Way, so. Right. Yeah. It's funny. We, we um, sometimes forget that our clients are people with lives too, and that they move and that they have changes in family dynamics and relationships. And um, not to forget that that wheelchair situation may be influenced or be influenced by the, the activity or the participation and some of those other, other factors. That's a really good point. Um, so we've talked a little bit about kind of the process of helping individuals acquire a customized chair. We've talked about things that the clinician can contribute to that process and some common challenges that we've seen in our practices. Um, are there any other things that you wish therapists knew? Um, if you had to kind of give some pearls of wisdom or some little tips of the trade? So this is almost more of an operational thing, but it has become extremely important in the seating and mobility world. And that's making sure that your documentation includes ruling out lesser costly equipment. Mm. In many, in many cases, it makes absolutely no sense to a therapist that he or she says in their documentation, this person has no sitting balance, but I have to rule out walking. What? Um, but it's, I in just in the company that I work, 30 to 35% of, of all claims are pended or denied because the therapist did not rule out lesser costly equipment. Um, it's kind of like what happened with Medicare several years ago where they start, they didn't change their rules. They just got more stringent. Um, so too are many uh, Medicare, Medicaid's and private insurers. So um, that can actually increase your evaluation to when your client finally gets the chair by, you know, a couple of months, which is obviously not acceptable. 
Right. So would it, so a therapist should indicate um, that they maybe have tried a lesser piece of equipment or at least uh, indicate reasoning in their letter of medical necessity, why other pieces of equipment, uh, lesser costly equipment would not be feasible? Yes. So for example, some, some funders will want to know why a group two chair, which is that sort of very basic powered chair with the captain seating sitting on top, Mm-hmm. Well, why won't that work for this client? I see. And you're thinking, well, obviously it won't work. I need I need a chair that has tilt plus recline. Mm-hmm. So it's ruling out why that won't work and then ruling in why you need that other chair so that you can do multiple power features. Those concepts are something that every ATP supplier should know, and they can help you with what's needed per funder. But that's, mm-hmm. that's a big uh, pinch point. Right, right. And there actually is a good um, way to access some of that information for anybody who wants it on the new motion website. Um, Susan, where is it exactly? Um, Newmotion.com under um, medical professionals and then document library. We actually compiled a guide to ruling out lesser costly equipment um, specifically for therapists. Excellent. I think another thing to remember for inpatient therapists is how important it is to adapt the wheelchairs that they are in as an inpatient to meet their needs and to be constantly changing those. Um, I know that not every uh, rehab unit or, you know, hospital has appropriate equipment, but you just have to get creative with it. Um, like Susan was talking earlier about using duct tape and blocks. And um, you can do things if, say, you have what most everybody has is a recliner. Can't tell you how many people I've seen with, with TBIs sitting in a recliner. They're always sliding out. It's causing, you know, it, what happens is a lot of postural issues could be avoided by positioning people from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You can do a fixed tilt in a recliner. You know, the back angle is nice because you can open that, but then making it into a fixed tilt with a, you know, a piece of wood, whatever you, you need to do under the seat to raise it up into a wedge. Tilt position. Yeah. A wedge. Like yes. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> that's the word I was looking for. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's a really great point. As clinicians, we're really excited to progress and to challenge our clients with their strength, with their um, mobility, you know, upright mobility skills. Um, and sometimes we forget to also progress their seating system, um, which can, as you mentioned, either um, kind of hold them back from um, overall progression or can actually contribute to some additional impairments and additional problems, um, which is exactly the opposite. We're trying to help them get better and get moving more and, and you know, look better and need less help. Um, we don't want to inadvertently slap on some additional impairments that they now have to address as well. So um, keeping up with with these clients, which is sometimes can be can be tricky, right? They sometimes are making rapid making making rapid changes. They're progressing. We're hoping mm-hmm. they're getting better. Um, so we need to really be on our toes to keep up with them in every aspect, and that in- includes their seating system that they're in for sure. Yeah. Which they're in a lot of the time when we're not seeing them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we have lots of literature about that. How much time our patients spend sitting or laying in bed when they're in rehab? Unfortunately. Yeah. Yes, we yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
any other kind of thoughts or or tips for the listeners out there? Just don't be afraid of the evaluation. You have the skills as a therapist. You do it every day. Just use those skills to look at people relative to being seated and mobile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and don't be afraid to ask questions of the ATP of why they are um, recommending certain kinds of equipment, especially if it doesn't make sense to you. You can't justify it if it doesn't make sense. So, right. That's a good point. That's a very good point. And I find I don't do a lot of initial evaluations. As I mentioned, I'm more in the outpatient um, realm. So a lot of clients come to me already with a seating system. Um, but I've gotten to know over the over the years um, that reasoning and that rationale has helped me learn um, and utilize kind of the theories behind some of the equipment and some of the componentry as to what may be working, why when there's a problem, I can now problem solve a little bit more on my own, which um, you know, I wouldn't have yeah. felt comfortable with, you know, initially. So knowing the why, kind of understanding the reasoning helps you with that letter of medical necessity for sure, but also helps kind of the big picture and the big concepts and things start to make sense a little more. So that is really helpful. There is one more thing. When you said letter of medical necessity, um, there are a number of, of seating and wheel mobility plus justification forms that are out there, like the wheel, wheelchair seating and mobility evaluation, the Houston Methodist form, I'm talking about paper forms mm -hmm. for people who don't have an electronic medical system like Cerner or something like that. Um, I personally would never try to just handwrite all of this. I mean, it would take forever. Mm -hmm. So that form helps you remember what it is you're supposed to focus in on. And then it also helps you, gives you cues as to how you might be justifying that equipment that you just recommended. Right. Right. So don't, don't try to freehand it. That would, that would be very difficult, I think. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, so we've talked to, we happen to have both of you from the same, um, uh, supplier company. Um, there are a number of suppliers. We have uh, no affiliation with you guys. Um, and nope. there is no relationships that we have um, at all, just to kind of put that disclaimer out there for everyone. Um, but there are a lot of resources available, um, especially from national providers. Mm -hmm. um, and in within the APTA, the um, wheel, there's a wheelchair and seating special interest group. Um, and on the ANPT website, under that special interest group, there's resources available for clinicians as well. Um, but there are a variety, just, you know, the World Wide Web has allowed us to have a lot of exchange of information and shared resources. Um, so there definitely are available resources. That being said, it's important to kind of um, vet some of the resources and make sure that they are um, trustworthy and that they are um, right. high caliber. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, so I do, I do suggest um, that individuals talk to ATPs and um, talk to their local suppliers to get some direction and guidance on that. Um, but there are a lot of resources available to help clinicians have some guidance. Um, as you mentioned, Susan, just for evaluations and forms, um, even for mm -hmm. uh, ways to um, have success with letters of medical necessity, there's templates and things like that available. Mm -hmm. um, so having some guidance um, is another another thing to look for and to not be afraid to ask questions about. And that is the the total response. I'm gonna. There's been a, a big thing about scribing and things like that around the country. That is totally the responsibility of the clinician. 
Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have other people do our treatment plans in any other realm, and that's our treatment plan. Right. Right. I'm going to give you one more site, which is a really nice site. It's the University of Pittsburgh, and um, just, I don't remember the name of the website, but it's just Google, University of Pittsburgh, R-S-T-C-E. So that's their rehab technology program. A lot of interesting stuff on that website, as, as well as yeah. webinars. Nice, yeah. Yeah, and I think probably another um, way to, to keep up with some of this stuff and kind of keep informed, as Stacy mentioned earlier, a lot of manufacturers and local reps are willing to do in-services, and they come with a wealth of information um, about mm-hmm. um, kind of justification and um, some of the other kind of logistics that go along with this process. Um, so those are also valuable resources of information as well. Especially for gonna... novel new, oh, I'm sorry, especially for novel new technology like eye gaze. I right. Mean, because you, you don't have, you can't just say my client needs eye gaze. There's, there's like, you know, 15 different components and believe it or not, you have to know what they do because you have to justify it. Right. So right. go ahead. Stacey. I was just going to say that, that in particular, Permobile and Sunrise Medical are great resources for, you know, they even have sample LMNs, things that help you can help you justify different components. And Quantum has a really good education program as well. Oh, okay. Yes. Yep. See, there's resources everywhere. There are. <laughs> maybe too many. <laughs> maybe too many. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, thank you, ladies, so much for your time, for offering your insights, your knowledge, your expertise. Um, as I mentioned, this, um, you know, this, this topic in general is sometimes overwhelming to, to folks. And then adding yes, on the is. complexity layer of individuals with severe or moderate TBIs um, adds to that complexity. So I think information around this topic is helpful. Um, and it's an area that uh, individuals may not get a lot of practice or exp- exposure to unless they're in a specialty clinic or a specialty facility. Um, so I appreciate all the information that you can provide for all of us around the country um, who may be struggling with this topic. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Yes, Great. it has. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you these guys pretty soon. Okay. Okay. All, all right. right. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Brain Bites. Make sure to follow the Brain Injury SIG on Facebook and Twitter. 